In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since... The foundation, no, since the message, sorry, spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if when you were listening to Hebrews 1 being read out, which parts of it might have jumped out to you. There's so much in that one chapter. Uh, I, in preparing for this, listened to A.W. Tozer preaching his series on Hebrews, and he spent seven sermons on this chapter. Um, I'm not going to do a seven-time-length sermon today. And, and then I listened to his eighth sermon because I figured I would keep going, and he said, actually, I forgot something in chapter one. I'm going to add that in. And so we ended up spending eight sermons. There's so much in it. It's a very full text. 
and you could spend a lot of valuable time contemplating the different things that are written in this chapter and you would get much benefit from it. But overall, there's a simple underlying message to be drawn out here, which is that God has spoken and we need to listen. God has spoken, we need to listen. It says that in verse 1, God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets. And it said it towards the end, that the uh, the things that we have heard uh, were first announced by the Lord and then confirmed to us by those who heard him. And we today have the remnant of what was written down by the prophets in the Old Testament. We have the writings of the apostles. And don't miss there that it says God spoke. And when you read the Bible, if you read Habakkuk, don't try and listen and hear what Habakkuk had to say. You hear what God had to say through Habakkuk. And when you read Hebrews, don't listen to what whoever wrote Hebrews had to say, but listen to what God had to say through the book of Hebrews. And my hope and prayer today is that as I'm speaking, you won't hear what I have to say, but today there will be some message from God directly for you in in what is written in this chapter. So I've got... um, Three sections, if you like, to have some notion of the structure of sermons as you go through them. The first section will be verses 2 through 4, basically, which is um, a summary that we are given about the sun, and then I will go through the next section, through to the end of chapter 1, which is a whole lot of proofs uh, from the Old Testament that the writer of Hebrews gives us, and then we'll do uh, chapter 2, the first uh, few verses of that, which is an application. And so really just following the structure that the text already has in it. It begins, as I said, within the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in many ways. And that's definitely what we find in the Old Testament when you read the history of the Jewish people. There's a fragmentary, if you like, message that's revealed all different pieces at different times. And some people received dreams and some people received direct messages. Moses spoke to God face to face. Um, other people, of course, just listening to the prophets received their spoken word and then we received what was written down. All different times and different places, different ways God spoke to them. But he immediately wants to draw a contrast and get to the crux of the matter, which is in these last days, um, that is from the reference point at which he's writing this, in the time just prior to when he's writing this, God had spoken through his son. There's something very interesting in the Greek that was basically impossible for any of the translations to translate, uh, but all of the commentators like to talk about, which is it doesn't actually say he has spoken to us by his son. The word his isn't there. It doesn't say by the son. It doesn't say by a son. It just says God has spoken to us by son, which is a very unusual turn of phrase. And it makes you think, what does it mean? Does it mean that the son is like a prophet and speaks onwards the words that he is given? Or is there something more going on? Well, there's definitely something more going on. And he wants us to understand the mystery of this. It's something like what is written in the first chapter of John when it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God. And then it explains that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that was the eternal Son of God. What he's explaining is something that is a deep mystery and an important and magnificent fact. And so that's what he then expounds over the next few verses, that 
God has not merely spoken by the words that Jesus says, but Jesus himself is a message of God directly to us. Jesus is the word of God. He says um, you, you could count it as six things, and they're arranged in what's called a chiasm, which means that the first one relates to the last one, and the second one relates to the second to last one, and the third one relates to the third to last one. So he kind of takes us up a hill and then back down it. So I'm going to pair them and speak about three things. The first one and the last one first is about the son being the heir. God's firstborn son is his heir. He says he's appointed heir of all things. And forgive me if I ever speak from different translations because I I got very confused in preparing the sermon. So he's appointed heir of all things. He also says uh, the last of the points that he makes is after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what he's speaking about here is Jesus' earthly ministry, a very accessible thing for us to understand because it's written down in the Gospels. We know that the Son of God became flesh, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was called Jesus. We saw that he had a ministry in this world, that he lived a righteous life, and we spoke these things earlier as we read the Apostles' Creed, that the Son of God made purification for sins by dying a death on the cross and being obedient unto death. He then afterwards was exalted and he was raised from the dead He ascended into heaven, and now he sat down at the right hand of God on high. And he summarizes this so quickly. We've got elsewhere entire books of the Bible dedicated to telling this story end to end, but here he just says, having made purification for sins, he ascended to the right hand of the power on high. But it's a very valuable way to summarize what God did. Notice he says, made purification for sins. He's not just saying he forgave sins. It's something much more complete, the work that Jesus has done. He didn't just forgive us our sins, but as Jack read earlier, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God's cosmic work was not just concerned with fixing up this tiff that he had had with us, but then uh, us continuing in our sin or continuing as we were. His creation had been stained and damaged And he was going to do a work that would restore it and turn it into something clean and pure again. So after making purification for sins. It also, in other translations, says after he by himself made purification for sins. He was the only one who could do it. And he did it alone. And this is the work that Jesus Christ did in his his earthly ministry. He made purification for our sins so that he could cleanse us from unrighteousness. And then he receives his inheritance. He sat down at the right hand of the power on high. And this is important as well because I think often when we think of the ministry of Jesus, we focus very much on his life and teaching and then his death and maybe his resurrection and we stop. But Jesus didn't stop at his resurrection. He ascended. And that's important because he is exalted. And this is something that the writer of Hebrews wants to make clear, that Jesus is not just the saviour who was then raised from the dead and so will we, but he was exalted to sit on the very throne of God. That He's actually the king of the entire universe because, as it says, he has been appointed the heir of all things. 
above every principality and power. Think of the most senior authority that you understand or can comprehend. Jesus is above that, given authority over the whole universe because he has by inheritance obtained that name, that he would be the king of all things. So this is his first and his sixth point. We can then look at his second and his fifth point. He says, through whom he made the worlds, or as ours says, through whom he made the universe, and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now it's definitely taking us up the hill here, is it? Not just this earthly ministry, but the Son of God is an eternal Son of God. Even before all of these things, Jesus was present. The Son of God was present at creation. Now, if we go back to the book of Genesis and read how creation happened, we know that God created by speaking. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, uh, let the light be divided from the darkness, and it was divided. Let there be uh, dry land appear between the waters. Let there be fish, and let there be birds. Let there be creatures of the ground, and let there be man in my image. He said all those things. That was his word. And now he's explaining that the word of God, when he speaks by son, that is the way he spoke at the very beginning of all time when he created everything. Jesus Christ was the word of God, the creative word of God. And it's not just that Jesus was, that the Son of God, God's Word incarnate, was his Word at the very beginning. But he explains that all through time, all things are upheld by the Word of his power. Each new moment, God is again creating his universe, in a sense, in the power of Jesus Christ. Because he is the word of God incarnate. And God, through his word, through the power of his word, is continually upholding the existence of all things. Again, this universal statement, all things. It says at the beginning of John, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. He says, nothing that was made was made without him. And so when we're dealing with the Son of God, we're not simply dealing with a man who was a good teacher and had that earthly ministry. We have to realize that what God encapsulated in the man Jesus was his eternal Son, through whom he created and maintains all things. Acts seventeen twenty eight, Paul speaks about God's continuous work involved in creation. He doesn't just say that God made us, but he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Continuously we credit our existence and our ongoing existence to God, and it is through the power of his word, which is Jesus Christ. Now this is already sounding like a thing that you could contemplate for a long time and try and wrap your head around, and you would never feel the magnificence of it, but he has another layer to go. He goes to points three and four. And this is one of these times, I think, in the Bible where the writer seems to be struggling for words to express an idea that's too wonderful for us. You know, I I can't remember where it says it, but uh, one of the Psalms says of God, "Your, your thoughts are too high for me. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And God says it as well. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. So here it says that the Son of God was the very radiance of God's glory and the express image of his substance. 
What is glory without radiance? What is a, a light without brightness? If you see the glory of God, the radiance, that's the Son of God. And if you could see the image of God, well, Jesus Christ is the express image of his substance. The express image, that word comes from a word for uh, making an image by stamping. It's, it's actually, we still have it in English, it's the word character. Um, but it doesn't have the same meaning it used to have in Greek, so they don't translate it character. But it, it came from making an image by stamping. And so it said, in a sense, Jesus was the imprint of God. But the imprint of God's what? His shape, his nature. I mean, we're made in the image of God. So he then brings in this other word, uh, hypostasis, which means the reality, the present reality of God. Not a description of his reality, not a abstract concept of his reality. No, actual God in its entirety. Jesus is an imprint of the actual reality of God. You can see why uh, it, this is a thing that is difficult for us to understand. We could contemplate it a lot, but there's a second point when the Bible says things like this where it's scrabbling for words is we've got to be very careful about being arrogant, thinking that we understand them so much to start drawing lines and boundaries and making conclusions. We've got to step back and wonder at things like this. It says the same types of things a few different ways in John. In John, Jesus said, No one has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He says, I and my Father are one. And he also says the Son can do nothing of himself. He does whatever he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. There's a unity between Jesus and God the Father. They are one. Jesus is God. And he's trying to express the way in which Jesus is God. And it is one of these things, as I said, we've got to step back and wonder. But we've got to remember it. Because when we go back down this mountain and we get back down to Jesus, maintains all things by the word of his power, and then we get to him purifying our sins, and it's back in the realm of things that we can understand and see playing out in history, we need to realize that God was doing a cosmic work and an amazing work. And we should not take for granted the work that God did through Jesus. And what is the message then? God spoke by son. What did he say by his son? By sending his son to by himself make purification for sins and then be elevated. What is the message? Well, one message is God loves us. God was so burdened by his love for his creation, mankind, that he pulled together this amazing and unfathomable work in order to find a way to purify his messed up creation. It's a work of salvation and a work of redemption, and that's the message, which is why at the end of this, when he summarizes it, he says, we need to take heed to what we've heard. Take heed to what? He says, let us not neglect so great a salvation. I'm going to come back to that a bit, but the next section in the text, he starts to prove the points that he's made by bringing in text from the Old Testament. And again, six, there's six quotations about the Son. Um, there's several reasons uh, why he would bring in a whole lot of quotations like this, and there's a few points that we should bring from it. 
One is he started by saying that in the past God spoke by the prophets, he's recently spoken by son. It's important for us to realise he's not saying God spoke two different messages. It was the same message all along because he's going to show us that the message of the prophets was the message of his son and was that all along. It was, it was hidden as a mystery for the appropriate time so that in history people would realise and understand it at the right time but God's message was the same message all along. Jesus said this when he spoke uh, in John 5.39. He spoke about the prophets and the law and he said, these are they which testify of me. These are about me. And on the road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus appeared to two disciples who were very confused. They thought the Messiah was coming and then the Messiah had been killed on the cross and uh, and, and they were confused. They, they, they're like, how, how is that the end of this story? And Jesus appeared next to them. They didn't know it was Jesus. And he started explaining that from the law and the prophets, this was always what had to happen. He said, didn't you know the Messiah had to suffer and die and then be raised again? He explains to them that that was always God's plan. And if they understood the, the message of the Old Testament and the prophets properly, then they would have seen that all along. And when he had uh, finished spending time with them, uh, he departed from them. They realised that it was Jesus, it says. They, they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he was speaking? I, I like, I have a, a pet theory that has no evidence whatsoever, but it's a pet theory that one of them wrote the book of Hebrews. Because if there's any book in the Bible that would be like the message on the road to Emmaus, it's the book of Hebrews. It goes through the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets and shows that the Messiah had to suffer and die. That was always God's plan and it was a cosmic plan. It wasn't small. It was always God's plan to himself purify a people and elevate them. So let's just uh, quickly survey through these six quotations. The first two um, from 2 Samuel 7.14 and Psalm 2, they are very clearly messages about a Messiah, the coming Messiah. The first is a covenant that God made to David that there would be an heir. And when he describes his heir, he says, I'll be to him a father and he'll be to me a son. In Psalm 2, where, where God says that um, he has his anointed who he has set on Zion, uh, he says to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or today I have become your father. And so those two texts as a starting point saying the Messiah was the Son of God. One and the same thing. God's plan of sending a Messiah was to send his Son. He establishes that. The third text says, let all the angels worship him. And so here he's um, clearly showing that the, the status of the Christ, the status of the Messiah, is not uh, merely the most senior man on the planet. He's not just going to be the senior king over all of the man and over earth, but rather that he would be above even the angels. The angels would have to worship him. Um, now, you might have fun trying to find what text that is quoting in your Bibles. Uh, it's quoting either Psalm 97, which is worded slightly differently, or it's quoting Deuteronomy 32:43, but it's quoting part that has been lost in the Hebrew text but it's present in the Greek text. And so you'll find it in the Septuagint and they found fragments of it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but you won't find it in this Bible because this is based on what's called the Masoretic text, 
which was copied in the year 1008, I think. So uh, basically, you might find it difficult finding it, but if you look up the Septuagint and the Greek version, you'll see just where it is. And it's speaking about the second coming of Christ. That's the context, if you look into it. The context is the second time Christ comes. The first time he came, he was made a little lower than the angels. The second time he comes to judge the nations, God says, let all the angels worship him. All things at that stage, put under his feet. The fourth text he quotes is from Psalm 45. It's a wedding psalm. Uh, it's, it's, it's a song about a, a king being married, and yet what it says about that king is clearly not just about any old king. It's clearly speaking about the ultimate king. And it's actually speaking about the ultimate wedding, uh, which will be the, between Christ and his church. And you can see the language that he uses, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. He's calling the king God. Jesus is God. So he's establishing that the Messiah was God and always was going to be. The next text from Psalm 102, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. He said that earlier, that the word of that Jesus was the word of God of creation through whom he made the world. Well, here he's showing it from Psalm 102. And if you read Psalm 102, you might be intrigued to discover that that is speaking to Jesus. But if you study the text, you'll find it's a dialogue between the Father and the Son. So have fun studying Psalm 102 um, later this week and realising what it's really saying. And lastly, uh, Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And, and this text is, um, is definitely a messianic text. It's about the exaltation of Christ. And this is actually where we are at in history. This is what has happened. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. He is seated on the throne in heaven. And this is what will happen. He will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And at the moment, we are in that waiting phase where God is building his church. And so... Um, to support that reading, Hebrews 10.13 literally says that, um, that he is there waiting until his enemies have made a footstool for his feet. So he uses these texts to prove the specific points that he just made. He also establishes a comparison to angels through this text. And the reason for this is because angels were or are the most exalted beings in the universe. They have the most authority. Angels have more authority than us. We're made a little lower than the angels, and he's going to keep talking about that in chapter 2. Well, Christ is made higher than the angels. All the angels have to worship him, and it's supporting that Jesus is exalted above all things. And there's another reason why he compares to angels. We'll come to that in this last point, which is the application. So in chapter 2, a few points of application from what we've read. The first point I want to make is from the phrase, such a great salvation, or so great a salvation. When we read this, we really should be struck that the salvation we've got is not something that was an easy task for God to put together in a sense. It wasn't a small thing. God did it with his entire being and he did it because he was burdened by his love for mankind 
He carried his love like a burden and he, he wanted to purify his creation, not to simply destroy it, not simply wipe it away, but to make it clean, to redeem it. It's a great salvation that the Son of God became a man. He dwelt among us by himself. He purified our sins. He alone could do it and he did it alone. That he's seated now above all powers. And the point he makes, we inherit this salvation. He had to do that, as it will say in the next chapter, so he could bring many sons to glory. Jesus Christ could have gone straight to glory if he was the only one going to get there. But to bring us to glory, he had to purge our sins. And even the angels themselves, who are the highest beings we know, what does it say at the end of chapter 1? Are they not ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's us. The angels serve for the sake of the people who are given this great salvation. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't want it simply pat us on the back for receiving a great salvation and give us comfort. But he wants to make us prepared for the type of walk we have to do here and now. And so he starts by saying something much more sobering. He says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. There are many things that clamour for our attention in this world. There's a reason why we're encouraged to give one day in seven to God, dedicating one day in seven to come back, to get away from the world, to be among his people, to worship him. Because the risk here is not an active and deliberate thing. He's not talking about the risk of people rejecting this salvation, but neglecting this salvation. Drifting is what happens when you're not doing anything, not when you're doing something. It's, it's, it's like if you're swimming across a river to try and get to a certain point on the other side and the most natural thing to happen is to drift, to go the direction of the river. And this world is all moving in one direction and we're trying to move in a different direction. In order to do that, we have to keep lifting up our head, head and looking to where we're trying to swim to so we can correct our course and make sure that we swim hard and we swim in the right direction and that we keep going. And this is a message throughout the whole of Hebrews. He's going to say in chapter 12, you know, that we, we need uh, to continue running. Uh, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We need to keep running and running with endurance. And to endure in this life, we do have to pay attention to what we hear because the most natural thing is that we drift. And when we drift... We never drift in the right direction. That's not the direction of the current that we're in. And then he gives an even more sobering example. He says, The message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Now, you might be wondering what this is referring to. Um, It could refer, of course, to any time in the Old Testament someone was told to do something by an angel because the angels have authority over us. But it's actually most likely a more specific reference than that. It's actually speaking about the law that was given from Mount Sinai 
and it was given to the Israelites because we have an example there of a people who didn't listen. And because they persistently didn't listen, they eventually were rejected and they were told that they would have to wander in the wilderness and they would not reach the promised land. They would have to wander until every last one of them had died in the wilderness and their children would enter. Um, Now, I don't really have time to prove to you that angels were involved in the giving of the law, but if you want to know, I can give you these texts later and I'll just read them out. Uh, Deuteronomy 33 verse 2, Galatians 3.19 and Acts 7.53 also speak about angels being involved in the giving of the law on Sinai. Um, It's not something that's part of our common Christian general knowledge, I think, the role of angels in a lot of things, but it's, it's certainly taught in the scriptures. And actually, the writer of Hebrews is going to spend a lot of chapters 3 and 4 talking about that generation that died in the wilderness and talking about how God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest because they refused to believe. If that message was binding that was only given through angels, how much more for us? How do we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the point is, this is a cosmic salvation. An implication for that is there's no other. There's no other way. There's no other saviour. If you want to be forgiven by a king, you can't go and apologise to a pauper. You have to apologise by the king to be forgiven by the king. If you want to hear me speaking, you have to listen to my words. You can't go and listen to someone else speaking. Well, our creator has spoken through his son. He speaks by son. He always has. All the words that come from him are his son, his word of power through which he made everything and he keeps it. And when he sent his son into the world, that was his way of creating a way to purify us and to give us a salvation, a great salvation. There is no other name by which we must be saved. And if you want to be saved, it really is simple that you hear what God has said, that you hear that he sent his son to purify sins and that if we trust him, then he will give that to us. He'll purify us. I'm not pure. None of you are pure. I'm sorry if you thought you were. You're not. No one here is pure. Jesus Christ was pure and he is able to purify us. And so he who is able to present us faultless before the throne of God with exceeding joy, to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.